A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stop. Namihi nui, and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balancer ho. Tonight we are celebrating science's best. So, a big congratulations to all the researchers who won medals at last night's research honours dinner. The awards were hosted by the Royal Society Te Aparangi, along with the Health Research Council of New Zealand. They recognise excellence in the physical, social and health sciences. For the first time in the event's 16-year history, half of the awards went to women. Māori researchers were also better represented than previously. Among them, Professor Linda Tuiwai-Smith from the University of Waikato, who received a major new honour, Te Pua Waitanga Award, for her significant contribution to Te Ao Māori and to Māori and Indigenous knowledge. The top science award, the Rutherford Medal, has gone to Professor Rod Downey, a mathematician at Victoria University of Wellington. Rod works on computability at the interface of maths and computer science. Algorithms feature a lot in his work. I study the mathematics of computation. I mean, historically, mathematics was generated by physics, by and large, or I guess accounting and things like that. But I, I think the, the advent of computers has driven a great interest in the mathematics of, of how algorithms work and how fast can we do things and how efficiently can we do things and... Uh, We have tasks that we need to do, and can we do them more efficiently? We hear about algorithms quite a lot in everyday life at the moment in terms of things like Facebook, where people say algorithms determine what it is that Facebook shows us. Can you explain what an algorithm is? An algorithm is simply a collection of instructions to do a task where each, each instruction should be very simple. So baking a cake, for example, is an example of an algorithm. Here are the instructions. If you follow the instructions faithfully and you're lucky, you'll get a nice cake. Similarly, in mathematics, we have very basic instructions that you might want to have. An algorithm will be based up with those little little instructions. And if you follow that faithfully, then you'll, you, you'll get some answer. Now, most people now, when they talk about algorithms, it's kind of morphed the, the meaning. They're talking about deep learning algorithms, which is actually something my son does, my eldest son which are based on statistical learning and things like that. But fundamentally, sitting inside a computer is a collection of instructions that we've made, and according to those instructions, um, if you follow that, then, then you'll achieve a goal. And actually, a lot of, I mean, a lot of there's a huge progress in science, and a lot of it's put down to engineering and you know, increased understanding of, of biology and things like that. But in fact, a lot of it's got to do with the fact that the computational power to analyse what's going on has increased so much. Someone once showed me a a CD. I'm old enough to remember CDs. And it was said to be a miracle of engineering, but it's also a miracle of mathematics that you can send, you can encode so much information on just a a bit of plastic and receive that information. That's that's an algorithm. It does that, of course. It reads it, it corrects the errors, and and the digital information on that is reproduced. And it comes across as sound. And it's a basis of huge amounts of modern society. So is maths about numbers? Not my math. And mathematics is much more about concepts and, and how you weld concepts together. And there's this, because there's this big structure out there of, of things that we know and things we've constructed. And the question is, 
how do you blend those things together to, to gain more knowledge? So a good example of, of, a, of a mathematical thing that I'd deal with would be a graph. Now, what's a graph? Okay, a graph would be a collection of dots, which vertices, which we call vertices because we've got to give them a mathematical name, and we might connect them together with an edge, which would indicate a relationship between those two dots. So those dots could represent, they could represent people, and a, a joining together would indicate that they know each other, or they have a common interest, or something like that. And this is uh, actually a way some of the internet algorithms work. That, that you have these things and you try and do what's called cluster editing, which means you, you break those into little cliques, little groups of people who have common interest, and that enables you to analyse what's going on. Now, that, that's, that's for people, but the dots could also represent genes in some bit of biology. It's the same thing. It's this, this idea that you can take objects and represent them as these abstract concepts, and if you prove an algorithm about graphs of a certain kind... It applies in every situation, and that's what most modern mathematics is about. It's about the abstraction of data or the abstraction of physics or the abstraction of any of these things, and what you're trying to do is you take that abstraction and then you, you seek to understand it. When you understand it very well, then you can develop better algorithms or you can develop better models for what you're trying to do. Or there's all kinds of things that you can do, and that's what mathematicians do, we, we think. <laughs> so my room's not very exciting. It's full of books, but, uh, but I'm not out there like digging things in the ground or anything. But it's, that's what you're really trying to do. We're trying to build models of the world or models of the, the, the metaphysical world, as it were. Yep. And come up with proofs for that? That's what I do, yeah. We'll stick with algorithms. Okay, so I have an algorithm for doing something. What would be my dream? Well, okay, it's a nice fast algorithm. I'd like to know it's the best algorithm for it. Why do we need good algorithms? Well, because, you know, if, if, if anything we do, if we can do it more efficiently, you know, we, we're doing timetabling for the university. I'd love it to be done more efficiently so that we get a really nice outcome. But then I have an algorithm. How do I know it's the best algorithm? I mean, I'd like some certificate, someone to prove to me to say this is the best algorithm you can do for this problem. And uh, a proof of that is, is some construction that we do in mathematics where we, we do a synthetic construction of ideas where we show that what we're doing actually works. Now, unfortunately, in lots of cases, we can't do that. And, in fact, there's a theorem, there's a proof in mathematics that there are things that we can't prove, <laughs> which, which is kind of disturbing. Well, it's good for my job, right, because there's always got something to do. But in the, in the 19th century, there was a belief that the universe was like a big clock, you just wound the clock up and started, and, and we could understand everything. Let us calculate, one famous mathematician said. Actually, it goes back to Lull. Raymond Lull was a, was a Franciscan uh, monk in the 13th century, and he, had, he was the first person to try and calculate, and he had the aspects of God on a, on a table, and you could just, if you wanted to know, what, what should I do next? You'd go and like, look, at your, look at your reckoner, which would tell you what you should do in this moral situation. So for a long time, people wanted to symbolically represent knowledge and that's that's what we do in mathematics we're trying to symbolically represent knowledge so anyway in the 19th century they really thought that the universe was this big clock and so one of the great problems that people had was to show that mathematics could be mechanized so that the problems of mathematics and hence presumably physics could be mechanized into a mechanical method that we just turn the machine on and go boom 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 and tell you all the truth and unfortunately Gödel in the in the early 20th century proved that, that you just can't not only is it don't we know how to do it, we can prove that we can't do it. 
that there's there's a proof that there are things that in any f sufficiently strong formal system, there are things which are true of that system that you can't prove within that system, which is just kind of fascinating fact. So the mathematics must remain creative. Does that have a particular name? Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Specifically, Gödel's first incompleteness theorem. Oh, you hear, here's more than one? Yes, the second incompleteness theorem. And not only that, any sufficiently strong <laughs> system of mathematics can't prove its own consistency. So you'd like to know that what you're working with is consistent. You can't prove falsehoods. And you can prove that you can't prove that. It's a bit weird when you think about it. And this has later been miniaturised into what's called NP-completeness, which is there are lots of things that we know how to check quite efficiently. Uh, I give you a big road map and I claim there's a way I can go through every town exactly once. That's called a Hamilton circuit, without repeating. And one way for you to check that is I'll just say, here's the circuit. And you go, aha, yes, I, OK, I can see. I can go all around. And I start drawing my way around. And I, and I just make sure I go through all the town. I tick them off as I go and I go get the end. I go, oh, I'm happy. Now, we don't know any way to find such a tour. So if I just give you a big map, then to try and find such a Hamilton tour is what's called NP-complete. And we can, we can prove that if we could do that efficiently then, for example, all cyber encryption would be, would be insecure, all of it. All banking would be insecure, any of that stuff. And we could have algorithms which would do all, all manner of computational tasks we don't know how to do efficiently, very, very efficiently. So that's one of the, the clay prices, a million dollars, if you can know how to figure that out. And also probably you'd, you could sell it to the banks or something. A fascinating problem. So how do we manage to encrypt things then? Ah, but of course we don't think you can do it efficiently. Okay. So <laughs> but? But m most encryption is actually not even based on something which is NP-complete, whatever that may be. It's based on the belief that we don't know... Well, there, there are different ways, but there's the discrete logarithm and uh, let's just do the simple one. There's a thing called RSA, which says that I have a big number, a really big number, really, really big number, 100,000 digits or something, and I want to figure out its factors... So it's got two factors, like uh, six has two factors, two and three. Two threes are six. So I have a really, really big number, and I tell you it has two factors, only two. And how do you find them? Well, if you go through all the possibilities, it would take you, like, forever. We don't think there's any way to do it without trying all possibilities. We have no proof of that fact. But that is the, one of the key public key encryption systems that's used. And it, it's based on the belief that you can't do that efficiently. If you could, then RSA would break and, you, and things would become very insecure. A lot of this feels very philosophical to me. Well, I mean, we're dealing with fundamental stuff. I mean, mathematics, the, the thing that attracted me to mathematics was that, you know, you're dealing with the stuff of the universe at a, at a very, very basic level. That's why when you, if, if you can prove good things about it, you know, in, in your mathematical theories or whatever, then they can have serious implications because you're dealing with fundamental objects. I mean, one area I've studied is something called algorithmic randomness, which is if you go to a casino and you, toss a co and, and you saw a 25 heads in a row come up, you'd be somewhat suspect. Now, it has the same probability as whatever you'd actually get, but how do we, how do we explain that? How do, we, how do we explain that something looks random and is there a theory? And the answer is, well, 
we shouldn't be able to computationally predict what the thing will do. I mean, my computational prediction would be head, 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 and that, that shouldn't work. So the idea is to develop a theory around that called algorithmic, meaning computational randomness, a computational explanation of randomness. Now, it turns out there are... <laughs> algorithms again. There are, there are lots of things that if we knew that we know randomised algorithms for, things, algorithms which work well on average, let's say, that we think probably can be de-randomised, but we have no idea how to do it. It's one of the big problems. It's called BPP equals P, but it's a really very complicated problem that really brilliant people have tried to solve. But if you gain insight into what's going on, if you can understand what's going on, then you can gain, you, you can gain a lot. <laughs> Long ago, my wife said to me that when she discovered that, that some of my work had been used... <laughs> so that it wasn't just theoretical? Yeah, for like cancer research and distribution of products in, in New South Wales and um, understanding Aboriginal ear infections in the Northern Territory, believe it or not. I, I was like, I said, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> you know, that I was just interested. I was interested in some fairly abstract things and they turned out to be useful not because I set out to do that, just because my intuition said that these were interesting problems to look at. And if you really understand something very well, often it can have implications. It's a real great study in kind of blue sky research. And why do we support blue sky research? Because I mean, you don't know how you it don't might know. be useful. You just don't know. We have a, someone who won the Nobel Prize here, and that was just because he, was, he saw something in his chemicals and thought, oh, that looks really interesting. And I think that's what happens. You can't use management to make research. It's really, you just follow your instincts. Now, I have to ask, because I've been doing some background reading on you, can you tell me about the link between mathematics and Scottish dancing? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> so Scottish country dancing is a very, uh, it's a kind of an unusual form of dancing in the sense that many people who do it are actually mathematicians, musicians, um, computer scientists. And that's because the, 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 the patterns in the dance have a certain appeal to such people. Because I've written, uh, I'm on my fifth book of dances that I've been writing, devising dances. Writing a dance is a little bit like proving a theorem. You, you see a a pattern in space because the kinds of problems that I think about are dynamic problems where I'm trying to imagine what an algorithm will be doing in, in, in time. So you have to visualise what's happening. And when, you, when you're dancing, it's, it's somewhat similar because you have to visualise where you'll be and where will the other people be and how do you do this and how do you do that. And um, I got into it because my wife dragged me along once and I went, OK, this, this looks kind of all right. Um, and I think four years later I was teaching it, so I really like it. It's a, it's a very interesting thing to do, very rewarding and very good for old people. In Scotland they, dis- they discovered it was one of the best exercises for old people because it, it's good for the bones and it keeps you mentally going. So now I've reached that age, I'll be doing it forever. Thanks, Rod. That was Rod Downey from Victoria University of Wellington and 2018 Rutherford Medal winner. Now, Professor Lisa Mattisoo-Smith is a molecular anthropologist at the University of Otago. She's won the 2018 Mason Jury Medal for her groundbreaking work using DNA to understand human migrations. 
So I'm interested in humans, human behavior, human adaptation, uh, human history, and I use molecular tools to answer those questions. The main area of research that I have been focusing on is um, the settlement of the Pacific and using molecular tools, which basically means using DNA data to answer questions about uh, human origins in the region, how people settled the Pacific, and now increasingly what the implications of that are for, for example, some of the health issues that are facing Pacific peoples today and really integrating an evolutionary and anthropological approach to understanding human health. Paint a picture for me about how the Pacific was peopled and talk a bit about the work that you've been doing, which is a lot of collaborative work with people across the Pacific. Absolutely. As I've always said, the settlement of the Pacific is truly one of the greatest uh, migration events in human history. An incredible feat of knowledge and um, skill and guts uh, for people to actually uh, cross the great distances of ocean um, to, to explore and settle the islands of the Pacific. We know that people left island Southeast Asia, you know, probably four to 5,000 years ago. We know that they arrived first in, in the islands off the north coast of New Guinea, the Bismarck Archipelago, about 3,300 years ago or so. And we see the material culture that we describe as the Lapita culture being a marker of those movements of people. And they ultimately reach the edge of the Polynesian Triangle, Samoa and Tonga, about 2,900 years ago. So... Polynesian origins can be traced back to those Lapita populations, but we think that there may be some additional complexity and and that perhaps there were other people coming in uh, after that period in time, maybe 1,500 years ago, uh, 1,200 years ago, that um, perhaps drove the, the next burst out from Samoa Tonga region into Central East Polynesia, into the Cook Islands, the Society Islands, and ultimately up to Hawaii, out to Rapa Nui and down to Aotearoa, arriving here, you know, 750 years ago or so. So how do you do that using DNA? We've taken a number of approaches, and I think it's important to take a number of approaches because it is quite a potentially complicated um, scenario and different lines of evidence are likely to give us a more complete picture of what's going on. So we look at the archaeology and the linguistics. I use the DNA data. Um, which means initially I started looking at the DNA of animals that the colonists who came out into the Pacific carried with them in their canoes, and we used the animal models to track the movement of of the founding um, canoes and and identify relationships there. So I started looking at the DNA of the Kiori, or Rattus excellens, uh, the Pacific rat, and so we could find out where the New Zealand lineages that we see in Kiori in New Zealand today where they came from, and we trace those back to both the Cook Islands and the Society Islands and multiple islands in those archipelagos, which indicated, again, a a large number or multiple canoes coming and bringing rats to Aotearoa. We then started looking at some of the other animals, the dogs that were brought down here um, from the Pacific. We also looked at pigs and chickens, neither of which were brought to Aotearoa, but um, that were transported by these people who crossed the Pacific uh, 3,000 years ago and through until the settlement of of Aotearoa. And then 
as time went on and as relationships were established with um, communities and communication and, and trust was established, we then moved on to looking at DNA uh, of the people themselves when, when people were ready and, and wanting that to be done. We look at the DNA of people living in, in the Pacific today and try to reconstruct, but we can also now use ancient DNA recovered from archaeological remains of animals, uh, uh, but also of, of people where communities are willing and, and interested in, in our uh, undertaking those kinds of studies. So we can actually look at what the DNA um, makeup was of individuals living in a particular place at a particular time. So we can then start to compare that to modern populations and um, understand the, the relationships. Do we have continuity um, through time or do we see changes that might be associated with different peoples coming and going? What was the, the impact of European arrival in the Pacific and the introduction of European diseases, which had a devastating impact on many Pacific communities, um, is that perhaps uh, a major event in shaping the genetic makeup that we see in the Pacific today? I think mitochondrial DNA has been an important tool for you. Can you explain that for me? So when most people think about DNA, they think about it, you know, kind of as a blueprint, and we know that it's more complicated than that. But it's the DNA that you inherit, you know, from both of your parents, your nuclear DNA that you get from both your parents is is mixed up in every generation. But a wonderful tool for molecular anthropologists, people interested in reconstructing historic relationships, is looking at DNA that doesn't get mixed up every generation. It's inherited in a nice clean line of descent. And mitochondrial DNA is one of those genetic markers that's passed down solely through the maternal line. And so we can see, in a sense, the movement of women um, across space and through time. We can also look at the Y chromosome um, from males that tells us about the paternal history. But it's the combination of, I think, all of these approaches that can tell us about the complexities, not only of the movement of people, but also some of the social structure by being able to look at mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome DNA combined with nuclear DNA, we can see, you know, is the history of the migration of women uh, different from the history of migration of men, which is, it is very commonly, if you think about male sailors and whalers and, and warriors moving across the landscape and raping and pillaging, you're going to have the introduction of specific Y chromosomes that without the mitochondrial lineages uh, coming along from that population, where uh, when you see both uh, mitochondrial and Y chromosomes coming from a particular location or, or movement of populations, that tells you generally that you've got more of a, a settlement um, structure. Or it can tell you about, you know, uh, for example, the movement of a mitochondrial lineages can tell us about the matrilineal and matrilocal structure of a, of a community. Do you move to your wife's family or with your wife's family uh, when a couple gets married? Or do you stay with the husband's family? And so that will cause different patterns of, of distributions of mitochondrial and Y chromosome markers uh, across a landscape. You did some groundbreaking work with Rangatani or Waro Iwi at Waro Bar. Yeah, that's a, a very exciting project um, that is ongoing. And it is the result of a collaboration between Rangatani or Waro, uh, the Canterbury Museum, and the University of Otago and several, several of my colleagues here. It 
began with a request for repatriation of Koiwi Tangata to Wairabar by Rangatane. Rangatane approved and supported uh, our analyses of, of the ancient DNA, and in addition to a number of other studies um, undertaken by some of my colleagues. And so we were able to obtain complete mitochondrial genomes from the closest representatives that we have of, of the founding population for Aotearoa, because Wairabar is one of the, the earliest archaeological sites in New Zealand, and the only site that actually has the burials of, of a number of individuals. And so we were able to obtain the first uh, complete mitochondrial genomes from the first New Zealanders, and that was pretty exciting. Um, but we were able to combine it with some of the work that I was doing as part of a, a Cook Fellowship um, with the Royal Society and the Africa Aotearoa project and sample uh, rangatane uh, members today and do look at their mitochondrial DNA and then provide the genetic connection between the population of, of Rangitani today and their tupuna um, from Warabar. How many people arrived in New Zealand, do you think, in the beginning? It's very difficult to, to give any specific numbers, but um, all of the evidence, both the, the molecular evidence, the archaeological evidence, and the oral traditions are certainly indicative of what we have referred to as, as a mass migration. You know, we're talking hundreds of women and probably I would I would suggest um, likely to be coming from a range, a number of locations within East Polynesia. Obviously, there's been a lot more migration into New Zealand in the last couple of hundred years. And you have looked at that genetic diversity as well. Can you tell me a bit about that work? Yeah, that's been, a, a again, a, a very uh, enjoyable project that includes both interesting science and community engagement. I looked at over 2,000 people across the country. We focused on five major cities of Auckland, Hamilton, uh, Wellington, Christchurch, and Dunedin, but also did some smaller regional sampling of, of random people. So I would go to markets and late night food markets or farmers markets, and we'd ask for volunteers to take DNA samples. We just do a cheek swab. And then I looked at the mitochondrial DNA or the maternal ancestry of, of New Zealanders across the country. And, and what we found was that all of the major mitochondrial lineages that exist, all of the branches of the, the human family tree in terms of their mitochondrial lineages are found here in Aotearoa. So the story of, of human migrations beginning in Africa and ultimately ending up here, the last landmass that was settled by humans. We carry that history, that great human history in, in our DNA as New Zealanders. Thanks, Lisa. Mason Jury Medal winner Lisa Matasu-Smith is from the University of Otago. She's been on Our Changing World many times before and there are links to those stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and now on Our Changing World, Associate Professor Marin Wellenreuter from Plant and Food Research has won the 2018 Hamilton Award for Early Career Research Excellence for work to develop New Zealand's favourite fish, snapper, as an aquaculture species. My focus is at the moment on snapper, Snapper is, of course, a very iconic species in New Zealand, and we are very keen to um, develop the species um, as a new species for aquaculture. So this sounds like a challenging project. You're starting from scratch with snapper? Absolutely. When I came to New Zealand four years ago, 
there was almost nothing known about the genetics of SNAPA. At the time, there were only a handful of genetic markers available. And when we started working on SNAPR, one of the first things that we did was that we assembled the genome of SNAPR. And that was, of course, an absolutely big step. Tell me a little bit more about the genomics work you're doing with Wild Snapper first. So where have you got to with that? So our work um, on Wild Snapper is together with Peter Ritchie at Victoria University. I'm an associate investigator on Peter Ritchie's Marston Grant on Snapper. And this Marston Grant seeks to explore the um, fisheries-induced evolution in Snapper using ancient DNA. So what we are doing is that we are trying to extract DNA from really, really old bones that were collected from middens all around New Zealand. And typically we use the jaw bones because they seem to preserve the ancient DNA in the best way. And together with the ancient DNA laboratory at Otago University and collaborators in Norway, We are trying to sequence this ancient DNA, which is really challenging because it breaks down over time into small fragments. So then we are trying to compare this sequenced ancient DNA with modern DNA samples that we are collecting or have been collecting over the last years from around New Zealand. And by doing this comparison, we are trying to understand the effect that fishing had on um, the genetic diversity of snapper. So have you got any insights yet into perhaps how much snapper genetic diversity we might have lost, for instance? It's still early days, so we're hoping to be in a position in a few months to actually get the first data sets back and then to do the analysis. What we're really trying to understand is whether fishing pressures have altered the evolutionary trajectory of snapper, because what happens with fishing is that fishing selects for the largest fish in a population, and then those that are growing really fast, they are being selected over time. And so this may then have an effect on the growth rates of snapper and also the time at which they mature. Because if you mature um, late in life and you're being caught before you are mature, you have not had a chance to pass on your genes to the next generation. So early maturation is typically selected, and we think that we might find a signature of this in the genome. Now this ties in nicely with the other project that you're working on which is trying to develop snapper as an aquaculture species because I imagine in that instance you'd actually be wanting fish that grew quite quickly. So tell me about the challenge of trying to turn a wild fish species into something that could be farmed under an aquaculture system. So the first thing that you need to do when you want to establish a new species for aquaculture is you have to catch it. That can be a challenge for some species. Then you have to bring it in a pretty good state into the hatchery. Once it's in the hatchery, you have to see if the species will spawn naturally, so if it will go into spawning on its own. And that's actually a challenge for a lot of species. A lot of species will actually not reproduce on their own. And so the first hurdle is then really to understand what the reasons are for species not to reproduce in captivity. But some species do actually spawn um, even if they're in a new environment like a hatchery. And for snapper, for example, it was no problem. And after we caught them, they already reproduced in the first year. And so the second hurdle is then once you've got a species to reproduce in a new environment like the hatchery, you also have to 
develop ways to get them to grow into really healthy fish. And this takes a little bit of time, and you have to try to get them to grow so that you can reproduce them again, or in other words, that you can close the life cycle of a species. Once you have closed the life cycle, then you can actually start a selective breeding program. And so that's what we are doing now with Snapper. We know we can spawn them really well in captivity. There's no problem. They, um, they will actually start more or less next month, and then they will spawn all the way to March. During that time, we can collect fertilized eggs and grow them into larvae and fingerlings and juveniles, and then those ones will start to reproduce again when they reach three years. And so our focus at the moment is to get them to grow really well into really healthy fish. And um, the breeding program that we have on Snapper focuses on enhancing key traits of interest, such as growth rate, um, but also things like um, a good resistance to temperature fluctuations. How do you know what to feed them? And I'm thinking in particular, how do you know what to feed the little fish? You know, with some species, that's actually trial and error. You just try it out if there's, for instance, no information available. Um, for snapper, it is pretty standard. You start feeding them with rotifers. Um, they're tiny, tiny things, and you load them up with lots of oils and really good nutrients, and the larvae grow really well. Once they have grown a little bit bigger and have used up their yolk sac, you can start feeding them atemia. These are slightly larger. We grow all of these things in our hatchery. So we've got a whole bay in our hatchery just dedicated to grow rotifers and atemia. And our technicians in the hatchery are very busy over the summer months when snapper are spawning just to produce enough food for the larvae. And then once they get older, you really feed them a varied diet. These are usually um, pellets that we design together with food companies. Um, they have to be high in proteins, but we also give them um, chopped up mussels or squid, things like that. How many snapper do you have in the hatchery at the moment? Are you talking tens or hundreds or thousands? I'm talking thousands. We've got quite a large broodstock, so the broodstock at the moment would consist of, say, 150 individuals. Then we have um, different aged snapper. You know, every year we are producing snapper. So, say, during the spawning season, we will produce 100, 150,000 snapper. And then we don't keep all of them. <laughs> they grow. They take up more space as they grow. Um, so we have to be um, selecting um, the best ones only to um, move on to the next generation. So when you say you're keeping the best ones, what are the, the features about a snapper that makes it a good one to keep? Yeah. Our core focus at the moment is to enhance the growth rate of snapper because if you can enhance the growth rate of a species, then you know you achieve um, your breeding gains much faster. It costs less money to get them to market size, and so growth, growth gains are really important. What that means is that in practice we select the fastest-growing individuals from each generation. But at the same time, we don't just select for growth rate because that's what traditional breeding programs usually did. We are also coupling this selection with genetic information to ensure that we don't cause inbreeding over time 
and also that we have a good um, presentation of the genetic diversity that we want to maintain in the population. Now, I understand that you have a special way of using photographs, of using images to, to identify, to fingerprint your snapper. Tell me about that. That's right. So in any breeding program, one of the things that you have to do is you have to understand how your fish are doing. And what that means is that you have to go into the hatchery and look at the fish and also measure them. For a breeding program, that means that you have to every year measure hundreds if not thousands of fish. And that is really time-consuming and is also loaded with problems because measuring a fish means you have to take it out of its tank. So they don't really like that, and it actually takes a lot of time to do that. In the past, what we have done is that we um, tag individual fish, and that allows us to track individuals over time. And then we measure their growth repeatedly over the years to understand what their growth trajectories are. But now what we are doing is that we just take an image. And it sounds simple. It isn't maybe quite as simple, but it's an absolutely fantastic way to get really good insights into the way that snapper grows. So we take the snapper, we anesthetize them first very lightly so that they're not stressed. Then we take an individual fish out of the tank and we take an image of the fish. And using that image, we can actually identify each individual in our hatchery. And again, I'm talking about thousands of different fish. Um, with a very high accuracy, with 99% accuracy. Um, so the color pattern of snapper we found is absolutely unique to each individual, and it's also stable over time. We have found that it's stable for at least four years. So this is the um, data that we have at the moment. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is stable over the whole life. We just don't have the data yet. And what we also know is that the color patterns are expressed once they are three to six months old, so quite early on. So what we do actually now in our hatchery, instead of tagging snapper, none of our snapper is really getting tagged anymore. Instead, when they're three to six months old, we take an image, and then when we recapture that individual in our, um, in our hatchery, we just take an image again, we run our software, and it will find this individual in our database of images again, and so we can see how much that individual has grown from the last time that we caught it. How long do you think it will be before snapper is ready to be a commercial aquaculture species? I would like to see this being ready in five to ten years. And I have to say, of course, breeding programs, I mean, these are long-term commitments. We get breeding gains with every generation. So every three years we get a new breeding gain. And every time we get that, it will become more lucrative or they will basically grow faster. Um, snapper at this stage grow already really well. We have made fantastic improvements just in our two-year breeding program. We have actually, for, for the early life stages of snapper, we were able to double the growth rate for the early days already. So we are quite confident that we can get them to grow to, say, 700 grams or one kilogram much faster. Are you looking at any other New Zealand fish species? Yeah, we're also looking at trevally. So trevally is related to um, the yellow-tailed kingfish. 
and it's a fantastic species. It's a schooling species. It's um, fantastic for sashimi. It's a species that is very new in our hatchery. We have spawned that species for the first time three years ago, and the offspring of Trevally is close to reaching sexual maturity, either this year or next year. We are actually just looking into that, and we are keeping a really close eye on the Trevally population to see if they may start to spawn this year or next year. Sounds exciting. Yeah, it is absolutely exciting. With every new species, we get exciting new challenges, their own requirements and their own needs, and it's it's a real multidisciplinary project. You need to know so many things when you're breeding a species. You need to know what temperatures they need, what they feed on, what they need to um, reproduce, um, yeah, all of these things. So I like the challenges of that, and I like the multidisciplinary aspects of it as well. Your varied background is sounding like it's a very useful thing to have. Yeah, I guess as long as I can remember, I always wanted to become a biologist. I've always been interested in the diversity of life and questions like how many species are there? Why are some groups of organisms so much more diverse than others? And I ask myself, how do environmental and biological traits influence speciation rates or rates of molecular evolution? And while I started out as an ecologist, I have really over the last 10 years more and more applied molecular techniques to, to integrate evolutionary ecology with genetics. And by doing so, I've studied fish, damselflies, and also flies. So I've worked on all sorts of little critters, and I've worked in Germany, Australia, New Zealand, and Sweden. So it's been extremely diverse, and it's, it's happened because I, I'm fascinated by science and why species are so diverse and what the genetics hold and how we can use that to understand their ecology and how we can better breed them and also protect natural populations in the wild. Thanks, Marin. Marin Wellenreuter is with Plant and Food Research and the University of Auckland. And as well as Snapper, she's working on developing Trevally as a future aquaculture species. Now, I had to shorten all these interviews slightly for radio, but you can find the full, long versions at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks for listening. I'm back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.